Hello and welcome to today's episode of the History of the Germans. I hope you had a great Christmas and you're looking forward to the sunny uplands of 2022. I also want to say a really big thank you to you all who've been sticking around for the History of the Germans. Spotify has reliably informed me that should you have listened to all the episodes until now, you've spent almost 1500 minutes with German history. That is more than 24 hours. I hope you found it worth it. And as you know, we're currently on a break. Well, you're on a break, I'm not, as I'm preparing the third season. But I did not want to leave you without any history entertainment at all. So I've therefore teamed up with my friend Benjamin Bernier from the Thugs and Miracles podcast to have a chat about mainly early French history, podcasting, and life in general. I had great fun doing this, and you may find it interesting. And as you listen to it, you may realize why I script every single word in every single episode. Plus, before we get any angry letters, we both know that Richard III was found in a car park in Leicester, not in Birmingham. So, without further ado, here we go. Hi, I'm here with uh, Benjamin Bernier, um, host of Miracles. 1500 years from the fall of the Roman Empire to the fall of the guillotine. One of my absolute favorite podcasts. And Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me on, Dirk. I really appreciate it. And I just want to apologize for the current setup I'm in. I was telling you just before we came on the show, I'm moving to Germany. It's been the longest move to Germany in the history of moves. And so I'm sitting here, uh, not the best recording setup. So, but yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you bearing with me for that. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, okay, Benjamin, let's let's start with the beginning. I mean, you you know, you gave us a little bit of you know uh, background on why you're doing this show, which you know really starts uh, you know in 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 the fifth century. You know, you've done the Merovingians, you've done the uh, uh, you're you're getting into the Carolingians. So, how did you get into the history of the early France. I mean, you know, this is, you know, going beyond sort of normal curiosity, you know, doing a podcast for two and a half years. So so what is the compelling thing that drove you there? So my last name is Bernier. So I actually am, I'm 100% American, like as you can tell by the voice. But no, but my grandfather was from Toulouse. And I've always had a curiosity about just family lineage and just history in general. And then going through the American system, we just didn't get a lot. You know, we knew that the French helped us in the revolution and we knew about Marie Antoinette. And I knew some things like Napoleon, of course. But short of that, my experience with France or any really European country was very skin deep. And I wanted to know more. And so literally, and I, I post. This is kind of the, the origin story and myth of Thugs and Miracles. I was in the Gallery of Battles in Versailles. And when I'm there, I'm standing in front of this painting. And it's the number one painting in the whole the whole gallery. It's right at the head. And it's Clovis. It's the Thugs and Miracles banner now. But it shows him, you know, he's got his arm to the sky. He's basically imploring God to help him win the fight against the Alemanni. And it's – I'm standing there. So I have no idea why this barbarian-looking guy is the number one painting in all of the Gallery of Battles in Versailles. And so I started looking into it. And for about two years, I was just researching and finding more and more stories that I just could not help but think were amazing. The show um, HBO with uh, Game of Thrones was on at the time. It was so bad the last two seasons that I started to purge it from my mind. But <laughs> no, Game of Thrones was on. And as I was watching this the show, I started realizing, I'm like, hold on a second, that's that's like Brunhilde, that's that's Fredegunda, that's he's he's just taking all these characters, and he's putting them into a different setting, but essentially, I mean, he's just literally taking all these different ideas that have been sprinkled all throughout history. They're there. You don't need to go ahead and make a new story up, and it's just incredibly fascinating to me in that sense. And so, yeah, that's uh, the driving motivation was to find out more for myself, and then mm-hmm. as I found out more, I decided, you know, I was very much inspired by. Uh, Mike Duncan, by uh, one of my favorites, is Sebastian Major at the Arctic History Podcast. Dan Carlin, I will say that it, he was an inspiration just in the fact that he did such a great job, but I don't even try to do what he does. He's yeah. four, four hours of extemporaneous talking on his it's <laughs> Good for you, Dan. No, yeah. So, and that's what inspired me to come and do it. And then just starting, it's a challenge. Honestly, the podcasting is a challenge and it's been a fun challenge and it's something I was just kind of looking for in this time of my life. And Really enjoyed it, so I'm going to stay with it. And Thugs and Miracles is now starting season three, as you mentioned. Yeah, wow, fantastic. Um, just just on, on 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 Game of Thrones, is there? 
Do you remember a particular episode, a particular story that was uh, straight out of out of your uh, narrative? Is there something so really, it was mostly the Cersei Lannister part. Okay. I started. I, it wasn't so much I was straight. I just started realizing that she was this amalgamation of probably four or five or six different women inside the history. But you could see how she was this kind of rich princess, and it, it very much reminded me of Brunhilde. And then you saw how just scheming and conniving she was in this. You know, she had that very Fredegunda type of uh, air about her, and just then she they they had a whole religious element that went into it. And so again, yeah. they were just they weren't necessarily taking one just completely out of time but there was just so much cribbing of, of really european history in all of this and then you start looking at some of the other tribes that are in there and it's like wow okay that was the spaniards and that was the french and these guys were the english and yeah, yeah. it's you start putting it together yeah no it's 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 fantastic um and so and when you start you literally i mean you, you you had very little knowledge so how long did it take you to actually build up a canon of knowledge so you could say well okay i feel ready to you know, go ahead and, 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 and produce my first episode. Yeah. Wow. I'd say really it took me two years to feel like I was comfortable enough to really be able to say something with any type of authority. And I, and mm. I even still question my ability to use that word as far as, <laughs> no, I, I like how Dan Carlin always says it, that he's a fan of history. He's not a historian. I am certainly not classically trained. Um, that may bring some benefits to the table just simply mm. because of the fact that maybe have a different viewpoint um, than someone else might who is, is kind of rigid in their doctrine of how they're going to go about looking at something. But no, I'd say it took me about two years to really feel comfortable with the initial stories. Um, once I started reading them, then you find other stories that completely conflicted with them. And so then you try to find out where that confliction was and you try to deconflict. And then you kind of, after I'd say, yeah, two full years of the early Merovingians, I started to feel like I really kind of had a good understanding of what had happened as well as the sources could tell me at that time frame wow that is a, that is a long time to dedicate a subject wow. yeah no, it's but again it, it's just so interesting i mean yeah. you get into someone like clovis and you literally have somebody who's going to split somebody's head open over the fact that they didn't let him have a vase <laughs> um he's kidnapping people and then he's going ahead and being ordained you know, as a patrician by the by the Pope at the time, you know, and being mm -hmm. a 507, he literally takes the Catholic faith. I didn't know this when I first started off, the different, the, the, what Arianism was, yeah. the Arian heresy, and the fact that there was people that were going around saying that Jesus wasn't divine, and so therefore that was an Arian heresy, and the Catholics were saying, no, that Jesus and God are all one, and that single concept was enough to start wars between the gods and the in the in the franks and ultimately really the franks shouldn't have existed <laughs> i mean <laughs> I, I say that just because of the fact that they were a very small group when i start yeah. looking at them in 476 well i actually started in 451 when you look at them in 451 they were essentially just in belgium uh, maybe yeah. a little bit of netherlands stuff like that and then they expanded all through france but even at that when they get down to the gauze the ostrogoths and the visigoths are all essentially being run by theodoric and the fact that 507, the Battle of Bouillet, was where they were able to finally push the, the gauze over the Pyrenees and into, into Spain. And if you had been a betting person looking at this in 505, you would have said, no, clearly the gauze are going to do the heavyweights. Yeah and, yeah. and so, again, just look at the ebbs and flows and the, this shouldn't have happened, but it did. It's, yeah. it, it's constantly amazing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the you know the, the the baptism into the Catholic faith, I still think is Clovis' biggest, best political move of all of them, because you know at, at that point they could actually gel with the with the local population, whilst every other Germanic tribe just sat atop and never really mingled. Yeah, and that's another thing I never really, you know, everybody talks about the fall of Rome, and I have now started to become very, very careful about how I say that. I now say yes, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, because the Byzantines, the Eastern Roman Empire, still went on until 1453. They were considering themselves to be Roman emperors. And everything that you saw with the Pope and with Clovis and everything else, they were calling Clovis a patrician or Patricius. And they were calling, you know, that went on to Charlemagne and that went on to Pepin and all these other who were getting titles of Rome. And they were just essentially carrying on that Western Roman empire mentality until the holy roman empire of course which you know just was the pope you know saying that well whether you're this is the empire again yeah. and yeah it's 
I, so I started just getting very careful that, yes, the proper Roman Empire, as we knew it, ended in 476, but it never really ended. And all this history is just a continuation. There is no yeah. dark age. You know, there's no fine line where it's like, oh, lights are out, dark ages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which, which also, I mean, what I'm sort of wondering is, is sort of this this deterioration of the of the Roman institutions in what we call the Dark Ages. I, I, I don't know. You've spent so much time on it, so so it was quite a slow process um, uh, relative to you know what you know what we com- commonly think as it just you know as the, the last Roman general falls and then chaos reigns and and how how much of that is actually alive by say 700 so 700 again again it was really an ebb and flow but i think if you start where we're at in england you can go out and you can see roman ruins you know all the way adrian's walls far up in scotland but that's really you can see the ebb of the empire the western roman empire falling back and then of course (laughs) they went over the border and it was really in my opinion the economy that failed mostly. It wasn't so much that people were, the institutions were not something that could be held up. It was the trade with the Romans. The Romans were on the Mediterranean. They were trading with everybody else in the world. And those roads and those trade networks were really what was sustaining so much of what was happening in Europe at that time that it, it, it was the money that was, that ran out, essentially. And all of a sudden, when the money ran out, then you had this kind of chaos to pick up what was left in that vacuum. And I can only imagine if tomorrow, like, Amazon just decided to empty their warehouses and just left, and they weren't there anymore. They just decided, no, we're going to go back to, you know, I guess the States. But you know what I'm saying? You know, wherever, <laughs> wherever they come from. But no, so they, if that happened, what would take that – how long would it take us to fill that void? And really, that's the story here to me is everything has been filling the void up to that point and you're left with ruins and the roads haven't been maintained the you know the different power structures the aqueducts everything else and they're more maintained as you get further south you can still go down to southern france to this day and see pontegard and it's still in fairly good condition whereas by the time you're up here in england pretty much anything of a roman ruin type of situation is pretty much gone yeah no, that's that's true it's yeah. just and one what are the things that you know because you know I'm I'm now in sort of you know the 12th century and I'm read you know doing a lot about encastellations so the building of castles and then you know the 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 knights and the barons can basically disappear onto their hills and they're out of reach of any central government so um and 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 that's obviously absolutely terrible for the peasants who who get get raped and pillaged nonstop and so I'm wondering whether the dark ages were essentially if you were a nobleman, you did wrong. You know, the king could come and chop your head off. Um, eh, whether, despite the fact that you know it's seen as incredibly brutal, was maybe not as violent on the day to day as um, as maybe later periods. I think you know, just like today, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, yeah. <laughs> the story of Clovis splitting the guy's head with an axe, maybe just apocryphal. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a good story. Not for the guy yeah. who got axed, but for everybody else, it's just a kind of it's a fun story to talk about and, you know, that type of thing. So I, I question some of the outright brutality um, of the times, if it was necessarily um, it, it, it was certainly brutal. Don't get me wrong. And I think, you know, Hobbes has said it best. You know, life is short, brutish and however Hobbes said it. But yeah, <laughs> but it, it ultimately with what we see with Clovis, with all the rest of them, is that they were still trying to institute laws. So you had the Salic law in particular is what was put forth by Clovis. His law was fairly well received and it had things like, you know, there was blood money that could be paid for people that were killed wrongly. There was a certain code that there was a list of fines that was put out for all of these different transgressions against the state. They were enforced. And I would even argue that they were enforced to the point where you see elements of the Salic law affecting even British common law. Shakespeare talks about it in Henry V, how the Salic law prevented a woman from being able to inherit the throne. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can even go even further and say, you know, Salic law might have even been what was preventing the French from having women voting before 1946. (laughs) So there's some pretty long ranging effects of what was going on. So to say that it was lawless is, in my opinion, fairly... um, Mis, misguided if, but for the for the common person to say like oh it was the dark ages and it was just everybody kind of every man for themselves yeah. no it wasn't and in those effects of the fact that it was so well documented justinian had a, a huge code from the byzantines mm. and all of these still affect what we're doing up to this very day oh yeah 
I mean, it's it's it's. I'm sometimes thinking. So I read about Genghis Khan recently, and and you know, there's this unbelievable outright brutality where he just slaughtered thousands over thousands of people. And you know, other than in in, in medieval uh, chronicles, these were literally thousands and thousands of people. Um, but that was to a large degree a function of you know to to ensure he didn't have to do that many sieges. So he does one siege, puts one city down, is unbelievably brutal, and everybody else opens their gates. Um, and I'm wondering whether, to a degree, what happened in this sort of outright, highly publicized brutality was a way of making sure that you could actually enforce things like the Salic law in 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 France as a as a Merovingian ruler. Certainly, you know, the the element of the state to be able to hold power and to be able to enforce power, no matter how they did it, is going to be something, even to this date, we still have, you know, the state has to have certain functions they have a monopoly on. You could make the argument that government is nothing but a monopoly on violence, in so far as owning the police force, in so far as owning the military. I can't go ahead and tell China I'm going to declare war on them, but the government can. Um, if you go back to this time way in the past, when you have the governments, it could have been a a signal, um, certainly in Chinggis Khan's case, to go ahead and say that, you know, he burned down this village to open your gates. Mm. You just get into some really, really murky um, moral points as far as, well, is that really, was that the best way of doing that? I mean, it, it certainly was effective. Uh, you know, it, you know, mostly, I mean, you know, and I, Dan Dan Carlin did a great episode way back when about the, the Mongols. And I think he really made a good point of saying, you know, you can't talk about things that happened in the 20th century because people are still alive from the 20th century who remember some of the things that happened and the, the wound is too fresh. But when you talk about the Mongols and what happened back in the 12th and 13th century, is that long enough ago that we can now talk about the fact that millions of people were slaughtered? And it's it's almost the Stalin quote of, you know, one person's a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Yeah. It, it, again, it just, you get into some really murky territory, um, morally speaking, when we start talking about this. But I will say that, by and large, what I've noticed in my research is that realpolitik is a big part of what's going on here. Uh, if you needed resources and the other person had them, well, they were going to go ahead and try to get them from that person, whether or not, you know, <laughs> if they couldn't do it through trade, then it was going to go to war. And that's pretty much, you know, certainly European history writ large for a thousand, well, two thousand years. As we, as we, you know, as as we're sort of moving into into the uh, from the Merovingians into the um, uh, the Carolingian period, um, if if you look at, um, you know, the Merovingians are sort of very much seen as 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 French. I think I don't think that many many Germans would claim themselves to be uh, be German, but but it's a, it's a different thing with the Carolingians. So so how do you feel about Charlemagne is he is he a Frenchman is he is he uh, a German is he is he neither of those things? <laughs> well, you know, so having gone to Notre Dame, there's a statue of Charlemagne right up front. Uh, you know, they call him Charlemagne, so I would say that you know, it's certainly uh, they're going to say he's French. Uh, yeah. But as I'm as I said, I'm moving to Germany and I'm moving right very close to Aachen, and Aachen is very much a German city, and it is where the you know Grand Palace and the cathedral and everything else of. Charlemagne was. So I, I can see where both sides would lay claim to him. And then really, when you think about how he started his empire by, you know, the fights against the Lombards and going over the Alps into Italy, and he was essentially the king of Italy, um, knocked the Lombards out of that position, the, the Iron Throne. Um, it's, yeah, it's, you can't go ahead and really say that he was one or the other. And it, it's something that I'm actually kind of glad about with my overall podcast title. Um, Thugs and Miracles is a much more difficult name to remember and to search on Podcatcher than the French History Podcast, which is run by Gary Giraud, who does a very nice job himself. Mm. But you want to find French History, type in the French History, but, and there it is. And Thugs and Miracles wouldn't necessarily be the first thing you find. But what I do like about the fact that I did that name is that while I'm looking at the French History, I'm starting to realize that French History and German History and Italian History, it's just kind of European History. And if I could redo my tagline, I might think about redoing it as, you know, history is seen through the eyes of the European monarchs instead of the French monarchs. Um, I just don't want to get too broad either. So that's really kind of what's been very interesting is my mindset has changed when it comes to how we look at these things. And as you were saying, who who is, is it Charlemagne or is it Carl de Gross? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which one do you want him to be? Um, and people can lay claim to him in either way. 
Yeah. No, and it's I mean it's 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 funny. So you know the 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 German imperial crown is called the crown of Charlemagne. It was never on Charlemagne's head. It was made about two hundred years later. And even the French have a have a crown that they call the crown called Charlemagne's crown, which isn't. I mean, it's actually even, yeah. even even younger. I mean, it's sort of you know it was made. I think it was made for Napoleon, if I'm not mistaken. So it's it is it is a it's a very contentious thing, isn't it? But again, I think it's very interesting to see how. Um, you know, history has influenced things. So you look at the fact that Charlemagne, he would say that he was surprised in 800 and Christmas Day when the, the Pope kind of ran in front of him and threw the crown on his head yeah. and, and crowned. And so he's like, oh, I had no idea that was coming, which, you know, OK, Charlemagne. But <laughs> it, it influenced a thousand years later when Napoleon was getting the crown of Charlemagne put on him as he's adorned in a robe, you know, a purple robe with the bees the merovingian bees all over him so i mean he's taken all these different traditions from rome and from you know the merovingians and from all these other different empires throughout history and he took the crown from the pope and he put it on his own head he and he crowned himself and it's a very uh, i'm not trying to fawn over napoleon because i know there's a lot of people who really don't like napoleon but i will say that he was definitely in touch with his history and I do appreciate yeah. that and how all of these different things did coalesce all the way to that point in him crowning himself as, you know, the new emperor at that time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, all these symbols matter, matter an awful lot. And um, and I think, I mean, it's, it's still fascinating that when, when the, 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 the Roman, Holy Roman Empire fell and Francis II put the crown down and said, you know, it's done, basta, over. He still wouldn't give the crown to Napoleon, who wanted it, because Napoleon, he just said, no, 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 this thing is not yours. <laughs> yep, thanks. <laughs> symbols, I mean, these symbols absolutely do have meaning. And it's something, as I go to some of these churches that throughout, uh, you know, Germany and England and all, and I see some of these relics, and, you know, they still have Dagobert II's skull in a cathedral and mall. And it's very interesting to me to see that they have, you know, the, they're still holding on to it. It's you know, what, what year are we in? 2021 or 2022 when we drop this? It's We are talking about the fact that we still fawn over these relics. And I can't imagine just how much more powerful it was 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, or even back when Napoleon and we were talking there with the crown. The fact that symbol was a very potent symbol 200 years ago. And we might not. You know, I, I, can you think of something maybe today that we look at as being as strong a symbol, you know, as, as they might have looked at, you know, Charlemagne's crown? I, I can't think of anything on top of my head. But Well, I mean, I'd say, so, I mean, we've replaced it with flags, right? I mean, you know, particularly in the U.S., the flag is, 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 is an enormously important symbol. And actually, I think the French sort of invented it because, they, you know, the, the German emperors had the, um, had the Holy Lance, which is essentially some sort of bulky object uh, the french had the oriflamme and um which was just a banner and um much easier to replace if you lost lose it somewhere <laughs> in a battle yeah. against the english um <laughs> go, go figure <laughs> <laughs> haven't even gotten into that yet <laughs> no but it's uh it, i definitely feel like yeah the symbols that we are talking about that were created and that are still potent to us today you know the the German flag with the two-headed eagle, it's, you know, you start talking about, you know, they just the eagle is a symbol writ large, really, in American culture is still there and comes from Rome and their standards. Yeah. So, but, it's, it's, but the American eagle is, a, is an indigenous bird of America, isn't it? It's, it, it's, it's it is, a, but when go, go check the military rank of a colonel or a naval captain, and it looks suspiciously <laughs> like the Roman standard. It doesn't look like the American bird. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's still, you know, if, if you if you walk through Rome and you find that the um, uh, the gullies um, have SPQR written on it, the Senate and the people of Rome still in charge of uh, canalization. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you actually brought that up because I had the chance to go to Ravenna and that mm. that was uh, I would go so far as a life changing experience to go really? into some of the cathedrals that are down there to stand in front of the mosaic with you know, Justinian on it and to see what I've only ever seen in textbooks, yeah. uh, to see the papal tiara, to see all these different items and to be able to go into some smaller churches that were so small and cloistered that you can almost still feel like they don't have electric lights in there. They just had oil and they had candles and with the smoke rising up and to be able to feel what it must have been like to be a commoner back in the 12th century, to walk into this, to be told that God is watching you at all times. They really set it up well. To be able yeah. to to really just to sensory 
overload when you go into these places, even up to this day, to feel like, wow, this is, I mean, again, it goes back to symbols, but this is just incredible. And yeah, Ravenna was, well, I would go so far as to say almost life-changing to be able to see it in person and to really be able to breathe it in. Wow. No, I mean it's yeah, it is it is it is absolutely astounding. I mean most of Italy is 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 astounding. But I find it interesting that that that, that you like the sort of you know like say the earlier uh, sort of uh, period Romanesque or, or you know essentially Ravenna sort of fifth sixth century. I don't even know what kind of style that 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 is Byzantine essentially. Byzantine, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And 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 you know if you if you compare that the sort of you know somewhat you know enclosed areas and then you have uh, the the gothic cathedrals are all sort of striving upwards and you know i think give a completely different sense uh, uh, of of um of spirituality i think which which i think has to do with also, also with the social change that that happened because these romanesque churches i think are largely built for the nobility and the uh, the bishops and these gothic cathedrals hold a lot more people Yes, no, I mean, absolutely. But, it, you know, even one of the small things when you go to Ravenna is they have on the outskirts of town, they have um, Theodoric's tomb. So yeah. what to, to me was just so amazing. It's very, I mean, it's it's a large structure stone wise, but it's not, you know, you're not going to have more than maybe 10 people inside of it. It's very small on the inside. And yeah. But the fact that it's there, the fact that you can touch everything you're talking about. I, I've written about Valentinian III, one of the last Roman Empire emperors, and how he had had all this trouble with his his sister, had sent love letters to you know Attila the Hun, and that didn't turn out well for anybody. And he's buried right behind one of the chapels in Ravenna. And you can uh, to be able to go in there and lay my hands on that, and to have you to still be allowed to lay your hands on it, just you need to touch it. Just to, <laughs> To, to a geek like myself is mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it is it is fantastic. Um, yeah, just I mean as, as we're sort of talking about symbols and 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 and, and monuments. I mean the other thing that that you know we both look at is 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 chronicles and 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 stories. And so uh, how do you how do you go about it when you go and and, and write an episode? Are you starting off with um, you know the primary sources? Are you starting off with secondary sources? Have you got it all? you know, sussed out before you even start or. Um... So I'll, I'll find the stories and, and what I've actually gone ahead and done, if you, if you haven't listened to the show yet, and I, I, I take a lot of inspiration from Sebastian Major of our fake history and the fact that he will tell you a story in the start of the episode. And then he'll tell you like, essentially that that's not true. That's what the myth is. And then he spends the rest of the show deconstructing it. Mm-hmm. And I loved his style of doing it. And so if flattery or I'm sorry, if imitation is the highest form of flattery, I'm not, copyright infringing from Sebastian Major. I'm just flattering him. But uh, he is, no, I, I do like, so I'll start this. And I, I've also noticed that I feel that when you're doing history, that almost to have a novelistic sense of it, especially when you're talking about the Middle Ages, where the sources are so scant that you have to fill in the blanks to some extent as a historian. You have you know that A happened, you know that B happened, but what happened in between to get there? And I don't necessarily try to invent entire stories, you know, like, you know, Hamlet or something in between, but I do come up with stories that I feel are interesting that would make sense and would fit that time. And then I go after the break, I come back and I go ahead and say, okay, here's exactly what these sources say. And here's the empirical facts that we can suss from archaeological records. And I do give all of this stuff. It is sourced, it is cited, it is all historically correct as best as I can do it again fan of history not a proper historian (laughs) and um but I I do try to bring I mean I do have a college education I do try to bring that education to bear in doing things the proper way and making sure that I am citing things faithfully and accurately and Mm -hmm. not just making things up but I do start the episodes with kind of the salacious stories because you can start talking about um Clotha the first when he went into Brittany into into the Breton Peninsula and how he literally was burning down houses and he killed his own son who had risen up against him. And there's a famous painting showing his dead body laying inside Cram was the name of the son. He was lying in state inside of this building that's burning and his entire family's in there. And it's because Clotha the first had set fire to the building and had burned Cram's entire family alive while Cram had the benefit of already being dead. And this, I mean, this is, how did you get there? How did you, I mean, you know, what happened between father and son is just this incredibly compelling story to get to that much anger 
and to be able to do that. Um, Clotho the First really was the very prototype of the Merovingian king, in my opinion, more so than even Clovis. He uh, was noted for having killed his nephews. When his brother died in battle, his two nephews went back to his mother, and she was holding them, and she was going to raise them and let them have that portion of the kingdom. Well, Clotho the First and his brother decided they wanted that portion of the kingdom, so they said, send the kids to us. And so the mom says, this is great. You're going to get a good you know, upbringing from your uncles. And the moment they arrived in front of their uncles, they stabbed them to death. And there's this incredibly just sadistic scene where the kids are literally, the second child to be stabbed was literally crying, was hanging on the one brother's leg and saying, please don't let him do this. Please don't let him do this. And Clothar looked at him and said, if you don't give him to me, it's going to be you. And it's... Again, Game of Thrones. It's I'm not trying. I'm certainly not trying to glorify this. I, I I feel bad in a way to go ahead and kind of giggle about this. But I mean, this story is so intense; it's unbelievable to yeah. me. In the 21st century, I could not imagine that situation. And these are people that were not even mentally deranged. They were the leaders of the world at that moment. And it's it's incredible. It's an incredible story. And all these stories are. And every single time I try to go through, and I think that I'm always scared because I get to the next episode, I'm like, wow, what am I going to find to talk about? Mm. And invariably you know the the sources provide and right now you know I'm, I'm going into episodes two and three of the new season and i'm starting down this whole path with the donation of constantine and how it was forged somebody within the catholic church folks not going to say it was him but somebody within the catholic church forged this document and they used it as the basis of their legal standing to have a temporal actual physical situation in italy for themselves for the next thousand years until 1800 and even at the end of that, you still talk about the Vatican wanting to have, you know, they were considered prisoners in Italy until Benito Mussolini gets involved. And, you know, that's how that's how the current Vatican City came about, because Benito Mussolini signed the treaty to go ahead and let the Vatican be its own private, you know, city state. Yeah. I, if I presented that to you as historical fiction for a Hollywood film, you would say, just get out of here. <laughs> and this is why I'm having so much fun with it. There's it always provides the source. Yeah. Is always provides. No, no. As I, I must say, I, lo- I really love this sort of your, your your opening sequences because they really sort of take you in into the story and you, you, you start caring about the characters and then you get the sort of the proper, you know, sober historical analysis of how this all happened. But but it's 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 I think it's a fantastic way. And I thought it was your idea, but that's very generous of you. Too. Well, <laughs> and for what it's worth, I would even go so far as to say that Sebastian Major is cribbing it. You know, we can go back to Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote, you know, Julius Caesar and Henry, the, you know, all the different Henrys. And he wrote all, you know, and, he, and all those histories are, again, I mean, Shakespeare's history are what is taken as fact. And when you go back and look at it, it's like, well, actually, that's not really what happened. Maybe Richard III wasn't a hunchback or, what you know, however it was. And you're finding all these different things because they just found him recently. They found yeah, one of the kings. Yeah, in a car park. Yeah, a car park in Birmingham, which, yeah, poor guy. But, yeah, uh, you know, as they're digging, they're finding all these different things out. And in the history you're coming to find out is not what you've been told your entire life. But it's a story that was made up by Will Shakespeare sitting in Stratford-upon-Avon essentially doing the you know the 16th century version of podcasting and <laughs> as a it, fan it, of history not a historian <laughs> exactly it's it, 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 none, none of us are making this up for the first time <laughs> but seriously i do think that it's it's incredibly interesting to be able to go through all of this and start to do the story to see what people have believed and then deconstruct and see if it actually is as close to reality as what it was and sometimes it's actually wilder. Like I said with Honorius, she did send a letter to Attila the Hun. She yeah. may have single-handedly redirected the Huns to come down into Italy and maybe had set up, you know, the, the fall of the Western Roman Empire is probably inevitable, but she mm. might have hastened it by a good 25 years. With, you know, <laughs> some of the actions she did. And that's, again, stories that you couldn't make up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And only to become one of the many wives of Attila. <laughs> He had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Undoubtedly. Um, it just, you know, just as, as, as we talk about, about female figures in, 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 in history, I mean, if I think you, you make the point in your podcast quite regularly that you find sort of male chroniclers not really taking full account of, of, of how important some of these, these uh, female, female protagonists were. And uh, it, it, it in your world, I mean, a big chunk of your history is Brunhilde versus Fredegunda, which is about you know the most, the biggest 
female power clash in European history that I can think of. I mean, I've been hard pressed to find any comparable storyline. So, so how come that? How, how do you how do you think it came that sort of chroniclers were not taking that fully into account, or or have they taken it fully into account? I mean. I think they have taken into account somewhat. Um, I mean, certainly the laws have always been skewed against women. Uh, the mm-hmm. Salic law, like I was saying, has had effects all the way up until, you know, the last century. Um, when you look at Fredegunda and Brunhilde, they both became, they were both queens properly, but they were only in a position of authority because they were regents to their sons who were too young to run the throne themselves. And ultimately, through a whole confluence of events with Brunhilde, it was actually her grandsons and her, you know, it was, she actually outlived all these different people. She was in her 70s by the time she died. And... She died a horrible death. She was pulled to, pulled apart by horses by Clothar, which is a whole different story. But the whole thing with the, you know how she was able to maintain power was not through any type of proper elective process, which you talk about quite a bit inside of the German history. Mm. It was always you know this hereditary process, and then because of the fact kids were too young, then they had to go ahead and have you know, regents put in place, and they had those you know these women, and then incredibly strong-minded women who had to step up. There were other times, you know, you can look at a Matilda who was able to go ahead. She was a very good regent, probably a very good leader, but she was much more uh, soft-hearted, I would say, than probably Brunhilde or Fredegunda was, and she ultimately got displaced by one of the mayors of the palace and got pushed off to an abbey to go finish out her days, whereas the other two women, they went out swinging, and ultimately, um, it's very, very interesting to see that, yes, these two women literally went to battle with each other on a field. And you can even say that, again, going to Shakespeare, that the whole story of Dunsinane and how, you know, the trees moved and all this other stuff was cribbed by Shakespeare from that experience because what he had Fredegunda do to overcome her, the numbers that she was short compared to Brunhilde was to have her people get dressed up and they held twigs and they moved closer and closer and closer before the battle dressed in camouflage as if they were a moving forest. And when they got up to the right spot, they yelled charge and they went in, were able to overcome their numerical inferiority through that subterfuge, which is, so I'm, I'm went to see Macbeth with my wife over this last summer and I'm sitting there going like, wait a second, that's, <laughs> It can't be right infringement on will. That's yeah. <laughs> so, it, it, but it's yeah. It's uh, that with the women in particular. That is interesting. And then we get into you know a couple of years later. You do continue to see women pop up. You have um, it, Eleanor of Aquitaine is probably the biggest one I can think of when you start getting into the 12th, 13th century. Uh, and then as you and I were talking offline about some of this other stuff, Catherine Medici. You know the whole Medici clan. But again, they were able to pull that together through the fact that they were regents. And that's really how they held yeah. power was not through any type of legal mechanism of inheritance as much as it was through the fact that they were the mothers of those children at the time and had the wherewithal to hold on to the power that they were given. Because a lot of times those regencies did fall to a senior male relative or whoever else might be willing to take it at that time. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very uh, – interesting history that we get into there with women and i'd like to bring it out just because of the fact that i feel like they did have so much more of a part in what was happening at this time even when you start talking about you know certain wives who were just advising their husbands so you talk about pepin and bertrada was you know there was a note in one of the sources that just says they know that pepin listened to her well they don't go a whole lot deeper about what that meant but you can get the impression like, OK, she had say in this. She had agency. She was doing things. And unfortunately, she has one of the worst nicknames in history. She's Bigfoot or Broadfoot. And it's a, so, yeah, Bertha Broadfoot was the queen of the Franks. And it's it's bad. Married to Pippin the Short. I mean, Married to Pippin the Short. Yeah, they exactly. Not, they weren't kind, were they? No, no, they were not. And we have no idea if she had big feet or if he was short. But it was a story that, you know, you know that he was listening to, you know that he took advice and you can expect that any, what husband doesn't at some point listen to his wife, you know, even back then human psychology really probably hasn't changed in five to 10,000 years. Like we had mentioned earlier, as we were talking to one another and I don't think it's changed there. And so I just feel like trying to find those stories, trying to do that more novelistic approach, trying to draw those out and see what's in the sources, but maybe isn't explicitly written. And without trying to bend it to the 21st narrative, 21st century narrative and trying to place my ideals into it, but just trying to maybe look a little bit deeper, because there were definitely when you start reading some guys like Charles Amon wrote a bunch of stuff in the 19th century. And he's a great writer to read because he's very, very fascinating, very uh, novelistic in how he writes the history. 
But how much of what he's saying is true and how much of that history has now been skewed because he completely unsourced just told you what happened. And it's all guys. It's all dudes swinging swords. (laughs) And so I think think there's a lot of space there. I think it is one of the most interesting parts of history, in my opinion, right now is for people to start doing these more diverse studies and trying to get beyond just, you know, the the kings and the, the battles. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, what, what what I also found quite a lot is that, you know, that 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 um, uh, that women were portrayed if they were successful in their own right. They were portrayed as, you know, duplicitous, uh, sexually incontinent, um, you know, badly behaved in any conceivable way. I mean, every single murder is ascribed to them. And and I find that, um, you know, I, it, it takes a long time to walk back walk back from that because there's no other source i mean it's quite hard to then prove that that didn't happen so i don't know whether you know do, do, is it, it, there's there's presumably quite a lot of that in 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 your sources as well there is but i think that i mean there's also an expectation that there's only so many things that a woman who is under law not allowed to do many things mm. she doesn't have a whole lot of options so uh, you start looking at certain kings who, you know, when they would get mad at their wives, they would throw them out of the palace and they would just exile them. Well, you don't have to exile a royal woman who's never had to fend for herself in history, you know, in her, in her entire life, too yeah. far outside of the palace in the Middle Ages and tell her to go hunt a boar. And of course, <laughs> I mean, you, you gave her a death sentence. Yeah. And so they were the way that, you know, people were trained, the way people came up is – just that's the real politique of the time. And women had to use, you know, as you said, the, the historians might call them their womanly wiles or their, mm. you know, their sexuality. Yeah. If those are the weapons they had to fight with. Well, then I can't blame them for fighting with them. And, yeah. they, and, and some some women were very, very good about being able to use that type of stuff. Mm. Um, Brunhilde comes to mind. She was jailed in Rouen after she had had her husband killed by Fredegunda in one of their earlier battles. Mm. She was done. She should be out of the history at this point. She would have been about 40 years old. And she she essentially seduced the other king's son because Chilperic had taken Fredegunda. His son, who was named Maravik, ironically, was the son of his first wife, who Fredegunda had displaced. Mm-hmm. So when he came to Rouen, she was able to essentially seduce him, get him to promise to marry her. He got her out of jail. She went back up into Austrasia. And the moment she got to Austrasia, she cut ties with him. And <laughs> Maravik ends up, he ends up getting killed. He ends up getting, you know, run down and killed. And his, you know, would have been wife is, you know, Brunilda is back in power in Austrasia because she took over the regency and she's back to being a full queen. I can't blame her for having done that. I no, feel bad no, for Maravec, no. but how was I mean? She wasn't. She wasn't going to break out of there, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger style with <laughs> a couple of pistols and you know some swinging some swords. It's Kill Bill's a fun story, but it's fake. Yeah, and it, it, she had to figure out something. And this, in that whole story, can go on through history. And yeah. so, you know, yes, the historians do use some very, very rough terms to go ahead, and especially in very moralized terms. Yeah. What what did you want him to do, and how is that any more or less immoral than burning somebody's entire family, you know, alive just yeah. because you, just because your son lost the war? Yeah, absolutely. Just I mean, as as, as you sort of you know you know transitioning to the Carolingian, I mean, is there is there a sort of real step change in the way that you know they uh, the history unfolds, society shifts? Do you? I'm glad you brought this up because, no, it's, what I feel like is I'm finding out more and more is that we have a very uh, prevalent time in his side of history to go ahead and say the, this was the Middle Ages, the Rome fell in 476, and that was the end of the Roman Empire. And then we had this happened here, and the Merovingians fell in 751. And we try to segment all these different time, dates, and groups, and realistically, it's just this continual flow. The Western Roman Empire did fall and people tried to pick it up after that, whether it be the Gauls or the Franks. And then they came into, you know, as they were trying to both fight for that power, they came into conflict with one another. And the church is kind of a constant in all of this. Uh, That progressed over the next two to three hundred years until you get to 751. Realistically, it wasn't that it was a shakeup in history as much as the Merovingian kings had been very, very complacent for about a hundred years. They were going to come out of power regardless just based on the fact that they had these waffening out the do-nothing kings for all this time. And Pepin stepped in, and he finally said—Charles Martellus' father actually was the first one to have an interregnum 
where you had about six years where you didn't have American Jim King and kind of set the groundwork for that. And then you saw Pepin able to finally take it over the top because of the fact that the Pope was in trouble. He was getting run out of town by the Lombards and the Byzantines, who he was subservient to, weren't helping him. So he ran up to the Franks. And But all these lines, all these storylines, I, I don't look at them as shifts in history as much as they're just what you would expect to have happen, given the fact that the Pope really didn't have anywhere else to run. Mm. He had no – who else was he going to go to at that point? He was either going to just kneel to the Lombards, yeah, let them have their way, or – well, I mean, the Byzantines couldn't have done anything to help him. So it's a continuation of his. And I feel like you see this all the way through is that, yes, if you look at the ninth century versus the sixth century, there's differences. Mm. But the way you get to those differences was such a gradual change throughout time. You don't really see a lot of really sharp breaks. There are some. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. in history writ large, I mean, you just maybe the nuclear bomb going off, you can sit there and say it was a, you know, a shakeup in history of, you know, just a change in how the like, war was fought up to that point. Yeah. I think really until you get to the 20th century. Up until yeah. the 20th, I mean, so until you start really getting mechanized industrial weaponry, you were riding mm-hmm. wars into battle and you were taking a rifle or, you know, maybe a small six shooter type of thing and or, or even a pike. Yeah. Really, up until what, the 18th century? I mean, it mm-hmm. wasn't until you got into the 19th century and the U.S. Civil War and then you start getting to World War One and the Franco-Prussian and all this other good stuff where you start seeing really mass carnage. You, you, mm-hmm. Maybe you want to go back to Napoleon and the Levee en masse and all the stuff that he did. Yeah. But it's something that, yeah, it's all just kind of a gradual trend in history. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's exactly it's sort of, you know, you suddenly see, you know, you're 100 years further on, you look back and you say, hang on. I mean, actually quite a lot of stuff has changed and it has changed through multiple steps in between. But, you know, things change, but not, you know, not from one day to the other. I mean, it, you know, if we take German history, everybody says, Canossa, that one day when or three days when the emperor was kneeling in the snow, that's when everything changed. Well, lots of stuff changed before that. Lots of stuff changed after that. But over the hundred years, actually, that shift happened. We just shorthanded it to one event. And, you know, and so you shorthand the Carolingians to the year 800. And and, in reality, it's it's at least 50, maybe it's 150 years earlier when all the groundwork is laid that led to the coronation of Charlemagne, right? 100%. 100%. No, there's a, there's a statue. I can't remember where I saw it, but in my research, I found a statue, and it literally has Charlemagne on top, but underneath it has Pepin de Aristotle and Pepin de Le Bref, and it has Charles Martel, and they're all lining. There's some sort of smaller statues underneath this larger statue of Charlemagne on a horse, mm-hmm. and I thought that's that's kind of perfect because mm-hmm. that's pretty much, I mean, he's standing on the shoulders of everything like you just said that was built over the course of a tremendous amount of time. And yeah. so there's, yeah, the 800, Christmas Day in 800, when the Pope went and did, you know, essentially an American football style, you know, place of the <laughs> crown on the head. And it's it's a good story and it's a good mark off point. Another thing I came across was when Pepin went ahead, uh, he was, cor- you know, had his coronation from the Pope in 754. And it was 20 years after that, that one of the people at saint Denis was writing about the coronation. He had been there and he said, oh, yeah, and the Pope at that time said that the line of succession will now pass at all times through these anointed folks who are the, you know, Pepin and his, his line. And I'm like, well, that's convenient that 20 years later, that's about the same time Pepin died. And that's about the same time Charlemagne needed to qualify himself. And all of a sudden, the guy just happens to remember that, oh, it's always got to be these two kids. It's, yeah. yeah. The stories line up a little too perfectly sometimes. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, but let me just and I mean you you you're saying you're going to do this up until Louis the Sixteenth. So two, two questions. I mean, how long is it going to take you? And secondly, <laughs> do you feel tempted to move on to Napoleon, cool dude? Um, maybe beyond. So the only reason I don't want to get into Napoleon is one. There's already a podcast, The Age of Napoleon. Um, who has done probably 60 episodes on on the storyline and has gone so deep into this one man's life that it's completely different than everything I've been doing where I'm trying to go ahead and go over this broad scope of history at a time. I think I've uh, in the first two seasons, I covered 300 years. I covered from 451 to 751. So if you're talking 150 years per episode or per season, which is taking me about a 25 episodes, takes me about a full calendar year when all said and done. So... Yeah, 1,500 years. So that's a, that's a decade. I'm two years into this. Um, so, yeah, you're talking probably another eight years till I'm getting to Louis. And 
just because it's, it's a, I thought it was a good tagline. I made it up myself. I didn't grip that one. But, you know, from the fall of Rome to the fall of the guillotine. And I've thought about it because, you know, there are still even pretenders to the Roman or to correction to the, you know, to the French throne and the Italian throne. There's still people that say that they're the, the proper king and they're just in exile or whatever. And it's okay. I, I, that you remember, I mean, it's the fall of the guillotine. The last guillotine was in 1967-something in, in France. So this this is have, true. You have room. I, I could do that, yeah. No, we can get into, you know, uh, Louis Napoleon. We can get into, you know, the third month. And it would be interesting to do those guys. But I think, like I said, Napoleon is such a touchstone and such a a lightning rod that it would really his his reign alone would take me at least a year, if not longer. And I don't know if I would do it as much justice as some people who have devoted all their study just to his. Yeah. So I feel I feel more comfortable, you know, and since I have eight years to still make this decision, I feel more comfortable just going to Louis the Sixteenth and just staying with those kind of proper. Because at the end of the day, I feel like everything else has been really well documented. The revolution has been documented beyond anything. Mike Duncan did what eighty episodes or seventy episodes on the revolution. If you want to know the revolution, listen to that. He's got it down to the minute. Yeah. And then you go from there and you get the you know the Age of Napoleon podcast and everybody talking there. Not to mention the number of biographies that have been written. At that point, I mean, it's like I feel like I'm getting into too current a territory for my taste. Mm. But all that stuff before that, I didn't know about it. And so I find that yeah. extremely fascinating. And I, I do think but towards the end, when you start getting to Louis the Fourteenth and how he passed it to his grandson to, you know, he lived so long. Yeah. And really, you know, at the time, I can't imagine somebody being in power for 70 years at a time yeah. when most people didn't live past, what, 45, you know, even in the you know 16th century. And then, yeah, you get all the way up into Louis the Sixteenth, and that's a fun story in and of itself. And I don't know that I need to go much further than that. It's already everything else has been covered at that point. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Benjamin. I mean, that's been that's been utterly fascinating. Um, so, do you want to just let us know where where we can reach you, where you can find your podcast, and um, uh, yeah. Is no, thank you. Very so, yeah, it's uh, thugsandmiracles.com is where the, uh, the the website. And if you go there, there's a newsletter link. It only comes up once. Just click off of it if you don't want to do it. But no, you can go to thugsandmiracles.com. I put transcripts up. I have the Merovingian family tree. I actually just finally got that updated uh, recently. So I'm going to – the Merovingians are up. I'm going to start the Carolingians. Uh, and then you can get the podcast there, or you can also go ahead and get it wherever you get podcasts. So Apple, Podbean, any of those good sources. Uh, Thugs and Miracles at gmail.com is my email address. And then you can reach out to me on any of the socials. Pretty much Thugs and Miracles everywhere. For whatever reason, Twitter doesn't allow you to have that many letters. So I'm Thugs and Miracle, just one <laughs> on, on there. Uh, but for what it's worth, and I don't want to be overly, I just, I've lost interest in Twitter. Uh, for various reasons, and so really, you can you can send me a message there, but by and large, you're bet best bet if you want to hit me on some of the other stuff. And people have been finding me on Instagram. It's been really really fun to have this kind of whole community of historians coming together on there and talking. And I really think that if you want to get involved, not just with myself, but with you and all these other people who are into history, it's there on IG. It's it's really very fascinating. Yeah. No. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, I hope to speak to you uh, again once you've done the Carolingians and uh, we can compare notes again. We can compare notes and we can decide once and for all, was he German or French? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Derek. Really appreciate it. Thank you.